welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today, rejoining us for a second time round, we've got Paddy Morgan. Paddy is an anaesthetist and HEMS doctor based down near Bristol. He's a doctor to the Surf Lifesaving and the RNLI. And he's worked with the University of Portsmouth in their Extreme Environment Laboratory, where he's been doing some research around hypothermia and its effects on the body. Paddy, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us again. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So, hypothermia is an area that's very close to my heart. I spend too much time up cold mountains in the Scottish weather for it not to be a fairly regular feature. But let's kind of dig down and and look at some of the details. Definitions-wise, how would we define hypothermia? Um, So hypothermia as its uh, basis is a core body temperature less than 35 degrees centigrade and occurs when heat loss exceeds heat generation. Now that's a very technical definition you know, and it's the kind of thing that you'd remember for your MRCP or your FRCS exams, probably not FRCS, FRCA exams. But what's the reality? We don't often see people that cold. The majority of patients we see that would be termed hypothermic by paramedics, general public, would be somebody who's cold and shivering. And so in some arenas, particularly at the water base, we talk about the cold casualty where they've got peripheral cooling, so they've lost dexterity, for example, well, their core temperatures are still high. That's kind of a, a broad brush attempt. When you then go down into the details, hypothermia has been classified by various people. Uh, if you look at the ICAR guidelines, they use the Swiss staging system. Uh, and I appreciate you've had Ian Scott, who's more of an expert in the very profound end of this, uh, on your calls. Now, the ICAR guidelines take you down to the five levels. So level one, you're alert and shivering, somewhere between a core temperature of 35 and 32. Um, Level two is an impaired consciousness without shivering. That's 32 to 28. Hypothermia level three is unconscious but breathing. And again, there's some correlations, but it's not incredibly strong. Uh, Temperatures there, 28 to 24 degrees centigrade. And stage four, no signs of life, uh, apparent death. That's 24 to 13 something to 14. Again, very difficult because as certain cases breach the boundaries of science that, you know, we have brought people back from quite cold temperatures. And then level five is death due to irreversible hypothermia. And that's again, based on the Swiss guidelines, but the International Alpine Rescue classify it in that way. And again, in terms of homework, this is a really good place to go is the ICAR guidelines. They've got lots of stuff in and around mountain and their hypothermia guidelines developed by Herman Brugger and his colleagues are some of the best in the world. And it's definitely a place to go for further reading if you'd like to. In terms of how that actually applies on scene as a pre-hospital physicians, basics, doctors, responders, that's all fit and well. But you're, you're coming down to what information do I need in terms of definitions it's going to make the difference as to how I treat a patient. Um, and I'm sure we'll come back on to sort of how we measure temperatures, core temperatures in the pre-hospital environment. But actually, when you've got your five gradings, that's super duper if you've got a temperature probe and you've got the time. But I'm a really simple soul, as we've discussed in previous podcasts. For me, my patients fall into two broad categories, and that being those that are shivering. And they are, for me, if you're shivering, and you've got a conscious level of some description, you're likely to be greater than 32, and that takes me down one management path. Stop shivering and still cold, that takes me down another management path. And then the third category are the ones that are very cold, not shivering, and they're the cases where I'm thinking, are you actually dead and cold, or are you cold and almost dead? And that's a tricky category, but again, we can come on to that later, I'm sure. And within that, you can then also categorise them as to the origin of their hypothermia. So you quite commonly will have your, essentially your exposure hypothermias. These are the classic ones you've probably seen with your mountain rescue, Dave, where you've got the fractured ankle and you're up in the snow, it's got dark and you've been missing for 12 hours. Then you have the other extreme where you've got the slow insidious hypothermia, 
which is invariably the little old ladies who've not quite paid as much on the heating bills. And then for me, they're two very distinct categories. And depending on where you work, you'll see more of one than the other. Bristol, for example, we see more of the insidious cold creeping in, the little old ladies who've not had the heating on, who've possibly had a medical event, the CVA, CVEs or the uh, myocardial infarctions, where they've not been as mobile, they've not eaten as much. And they're a very different kettle of fish once you get to the hospital compared to the exposure hypothermias that you'll see up in the hills and even the alcoholics who've had one too many and fallen asleep on the bench in the park in December. It's really interesting. The uh, the alcoholics and folk not quite making it home after a, a whiskey too many is certainly an area that we never really used to think of as being hypothermia. But actually, a lot of these guys main issue is their temperature rather than anything else yeah absolutely but as you know many clinicians have seen a lot of these chaps who indulge in one too many babies seem almost indestructible <laughs> so uh, <laughs> irrespective of their temperature you can usually get them back to a level of function i mean the other area that we didn't talk about is often when i approach a pre-hospital scene like any other scene, so an RTC, going into a house fire or cardiac arrest, I'm thinking, what is the mechanism that's got them here? And again, the more information you can gather going into a scene, the more it feeds into your decision-making. So the other kind of categorizations to consider are things like, is this, as we've talked in the previous podcast, a submersion drowning event, where again, it comes down to, were you hypoxic and then cold, or cold and then hypoxic in terms of survivability? Your avalanche casualties, where, again, you may very well be wearing lots of protective clothing, but you have to think about the mechanism. You know, how far down are they? How long have they been there? Have they got other trauma which is incompatible with survival? And then, as I say, if you've had your MI crashed your car into a field and nobody's found you for a few days, have you had the seizure and you've been face down in the snow for a period of time? So, again, like any scene, you're going in personal safety, thinking about the mechanism, and those kind of categories of how you get there, and then thinking about was it the injury, the hypoxia first, or was it the cold? Because if you're cold following an injury or cold following a medical event, such as hypoxia MI, your probabilities of survival are significantly lower. But again, quite a lot of this can be picked out in the initial stories and histories from the scene. Again, glad you kind of broadening the definition a little bit. Um... And the other thing that I have seen that we haven't historically, I guess, included in the hypothermia bracket is the patients where we give them hypothermia, where we rock up and cut all their clothes off and then fill them full of salty water and cut the nice protective car off from around them and then lay them still and part naked on a stretcher in the middle of a road whilst we faff around and try and do fancy medicine. You've all seen the Kareem, Kareem Brohi uh, papers on the, the triads of death, and hypothermia features quite highly in that, that we can actually make our patients much sicker by messing around. And Professor Dave Lockie talks about this in terms of, he says, we should only be doing that pre-hospitally that is required that will aid the casualty without delaying their delivery to a centre that can give them definitive care. You know, you and I have both had training where we could go and amputate a limb on scene. We could suture up a wound. But actually, it's not in the patient's benefit if they're sat there getting really cold. Well, I practice my suturing skills I've not used for 15, 20 years. You know, so again, it's about a balance. And pre-hospital care, as many of your listeners will know, is always that balance between what I'm capable of doing and what I should be doing, thinking of not just what's in front of me, but also the bigger picture. Pardon the pun, what is the helicopter view of this? Um, where are we and where do I need to get to? And in, particularly in hyperthermics, that plays in quite well. And funnily enough, did my homework before talking to you today, and I did listen to the excellent podcast you did with Dr. Scott, and he raised a very good point for me, and that was when many of us do it instinctively, that the moment you start walking into a room, you're thinking, how do I get out? And in any pre-hospital event, I'm always thinking, okay, I talk to my trainees about the twos and they always laugh at me and look slightly confused. And it's always that, where do I want to be in two minutes with this patient? Where do I want to be in 20 minutes? And that's hopefully in some kind of transit if possible. And where do I want to be in two hours? And when you actually ask them to give you your twos, like, where do you want to be in two minutes, 20 and two hours? It then lays out a timeline. And at that point, when somebody says to me, I want to be in ECMO in two hours, 
you think, well, I best make a phone call now then because there's a lot of people who need to get involved in that process. I need to get the patient there, so how am I going to get my transports? And you'll have found this, I suspect, in Mountain Rescue. Again, there we used to talk about, okay, navigator, I need a helicopter landing site. I need a quick and dirty route out on a slow and steady route because I need some options because my transit out often is as difficult as the actual management of the case. That's potentially why pre-hospital is actually so exciting because it's not just the clinical. You've also got that pull back the wider view looking forwards. I wholeheartedly agree with that. It adds a whole dimension to the challenge that I find fascinating. Often the most important thing that I'll do at a scene is actually say, okay, let's not faff around and let's just get moving somewhere and treat with diesel rather than with any kind of fancy medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's just dive into a little bit of physiology. Now, I'm going to have to put some reins on you because I know that you're anaesthetist by training and I've got a small brain and the other side of the blood-brain barrier. Um, But surgeon slash pre-hospital care slash GP appropriate physiology of hypothermia. Oh, you flatter me so. Is this where I confess? I didn't pass the exams (laughs) first time. I I think I should have been a stuntman in my other career. Um, The physiology of hypothermia. I'm, I'm going to take you to a scary place and I'm going to say to you, I'm going to hurt your head now, and I'm going to say two things. The first is the human body is a big piece of meat, and we'll come back to that. And the second is that as that piece of meat, we are an enzyme-based system. Absolutely everything is an enzyme-based, that being your brain function, heart function, the way your hemoglobin works, your clotting, your immune system, everything is enzyme-based systems. And enzymes love three things, a good pH, so acid uh, alkali balance it has to sit in a very narrow band for optimal function it likes a good temperature and that good temperature is not too hot not too cold just right for optimal performance and then the third thing it requires is fuel and that fuel comes through oxygen into the cells releasing atp delivery to where it's required and then removal of the waste substances so the lactates and all the other debris that comes with cellular function So if you take that enzyme, that enzyme-based system, and I now say to you, I'm going to make you cold, well, then the enzymes won't work as well. And so that's the enzymes for, in a very survival-based system, fine motor function, because all the muscle control goes, your coarse motor function then comes shortly afterwards. In terms of your brain, it's decision-making function. Quite often, when you look at survival stories, the decisions that some people make are very bizarre and it's purely because as you get cold your brain function slows down because again it's an enzyme-based system when the enzymes can't work because they're too cold it all slows down and if you think of it in that way that the enzyme work function as well everything slows down your heart rate starts to slow down so if you as you get cold your heart rate starts to slow down and then when it can't pump as much that slow sinus arrhythmia gives way to a pa On some occasions, because of cellular shift of ions, you're going to drop into atrial fibrillation and then on into ventricular fibrillation and then eventually asystole. Now, it doesn't always happen in that way. Again, it depends on what your baseline cardiac function in terms of where there's a damage, the electrolytes, how cold you get, how quickly you get cold, how quickly you get warm, so and so forth. But there's a couple of things just on the cardiovascular. Again, this will drop into those with a similar geekadom. They talk about the J wave, the Osborne. Oh, this is brilliant. They've got Osborne waves. What does that tell you? Not a lot. It tells you they're cold, but by the definition of the fact you're looking for them, you've probably already had your hand on the patient and they're already cold. So that's not so much of a worry. It's one of those, if you see it, that's great. Tick the box for your MRCP. For me, if I see a patient who's not known to be in AF go into AF, that's a worry. Because these are patients that are cold enough that they've now got an electrical disturbance. And there are some papers quoting a 50% probability they will deteriorate into ventricular fibrillation if nothing is done about that uh, temperature change. With that as well in the cardiovascular system, as you get cold, you get peripheral vasoconstriction. And if you're drifting into your cold for long enough, you'll actually have a cold diuresis where you offload some of that fluid. And so if we start flooding them with fluid, that fluid will then distribute elsewhere and we've done this in triathletes, bizarrely, drifting slightly off track. When they've come out of their swim, they are peripherally vasoconstricted. And a lot of triathletes will actually rehydrate, you know, they'll hyperhydrate before their swim going, I want to do my swim, I'm going to get straight into the bike, I'm going to be super hydrated. And they take on two litres of fluid. Of course, they vasoconstrict 
And the first thing your body does is get rid of it. So you have a wee as soon as you get in the water. So when they get out, not only have they taken on two litres of fluid, they've probably urinated out two litres of fluid. So they're back to where they started, but they've probably lost some of those electrolytes in the process. They've used metabolic energy to shift that fluid. The University of Portsmouth Extreme Environment Laboratory have worked with elite cyclists and demonstrated that you vasodilate at different points following the cold swim of a triathlon. And so again, acute to late when we talk about treatment is once you are vasoconstricted, keep fluids to a minimum. As you rewarm and they vasodilate, you'll have to backfill that space with some fluids, but cautious, cautious fluids targeting carotid pulses initially and then radial pulses, again, depending on your circumstance, but don't go too heavy on the fluids too soon. In terms of respiratory function, again, as you cool down, your oxygen requirements are less because, again, the enzymes aren't as effective and so you don't ventilate as much and you haven't actually got the capacity to ventilate as much either. So your breathing slows down. They may be breathing two, three times in that minute rather than the 10 to 20 that many of us would do in a panicking situation. And so, again, oxygen requirements are slightly less. And so survival is actually quite remarkable from cold events because the brain shutting down, oxygen requirements shutting down, the circulatory pump shutting down. And if you then went through every organ, organ system in the body, again, you'd have the same problems. And this is why we see things like pancreatitis in those who've been cooled in ITU because you get sludging of the enzymes because everything's really cold and then it just sits there eating away at the pancreas. You get inflammation of the lung lining again just because it gets leaky because everything's just not really happening. It starts to be settled. And with that, once you then start to rewarm these patients, you then get the inflammatory response associated with all those enzymes that haven't been working suddenly kick-started back into action and they get an inflammation that comes with it. But in a nutshell, think of enzymes. Think every system is an enzyme. As it gets cold, it slows down and that pretty much fits every system. The keys in the pre-hospital are the decision-making of the individual, and so some of them will act like they're drunk, you may have seen. They may have gone in the wrong direction, take their own clothes off, that kind of thing. Think about their fine motor coordination, so and so forth. In terms of the piece of meat concept, if I take a bath of water of about 80 litres, 80 kilo male, and I then take a litre of warm saline and try and put it into that 80 litres of sort of warm saline, it's not going to make any difference, which is why flooding these guys with lots of warm fluid doesn't work. In the same way, if you know, if you imagine that's 80 kilos of meat, just throw it on your shoulder, take it out of the fridge, and you pop it on the barbecue, you can heat the outside and you will scald it, but you still need the core of that piece of meat to start to warm up. And so you, you have to then think about heat flux lines, which is why there's a, a term banded around after drop. Now, depending on which physiologist you talk to, after drop doesn't necessarily exist, or it does exist, <laughs> or it's just an observation of temperatures according to basic thermodynamics. Take your 80 kilo piece of meat, and if you start to warm the outside, slowly as the temperature differential changes, you'll start to have heat moving back into the core. And there's some fantastic base physiology experiments where they've put a melon into a freezer, put a thermometer on the outside and a thermometer on the inside, and they've measured the temperature differences and they've mapped the changes and then they've done the same for human beings. And guess what? 80 kilos of human behaves like 80 kilos of a melon. It is it's pure <laughs> thermodynamics. Where this becomes a slight problem for us, and you, you touched on this earlier, is where we give interventions to that individual, such as anaesthetics. We give them some pain relief and you get some vasodilation. And yes, there is some vasodilation, you push more blood to the core and so you get cooling. But what you also do is you're also anaesthetizing the central control of temperature. And this, again, if you then take the extrapolations from the physiology, your central control of temperature requires a couple of things. It requires glucose and it also requires warmth. And so as you cool down, your ability to control your temperature goes from, OK, I'm not going to feel cold, I'm going to start to shiver. And shivering increases your metabolic rate by six to eight times. And you can continue that shiver, and that shiver is fueled by glycogen. And so we have, there's been some studies done, and again, the labs have done it, where you can actually just keep people shivering for a really long time. Your glycogen stores are fairly uh, enormous. So provided you're not absolutely exhausted and just run a marathon, you can shiver for a very, very long time. But there comes a threshold point um, within the brain where you say, actually, do you know what? I've had enough now. <laughs> I'm not going to shiver anymore because... 
were still cooling despite my shivering and I've gone below my threshold. And the threshold's about 32. It varies from individual to individual, but about 32. And at that point, you then go into almost a hibernation state where you stop shivering. And at that point, you can almost see people just drop off that precipice. They start to cool down really quickly because you're no longer generating heat. And then you're reliant purely on what's circulating and the environmental conditions that you're exposed to. Now, if you are in running cold water with your head out, you'll cool really rapidly. If you're lying there in the snow, you're going to cool really rapidly. If you're sat in a house and the house has got central heating on, you won't cool as quickly, but you'll still cool down. And again, this comes back to what is it that's allowing them to cool? Is it injury? Is it a, a central insult to the brain? Is it actually drugs or alcohol, either that we've given them as part of anaesthetics, pain relief sedation, or is it something that they've taken themselves? And so again, thinking about that 80 kilos piece of meat, when you start to rewarm, you can't just suddenly stick them in a 40 degree bath and hope for the best. If they're very, very cold, you need to do it nice and gently. And once they start to warm up, you then need to temper it, which is where there is a royal role for things like ECMO um, and also peripheral to core temperature measurements so you can actually track that gradient but we touch on shivering and for me shivering is one of those really key it's a physiological entity which is my simplistic triage tool on scene if a patient is shivering it means okay they're generating heat i need to assist them in that heat generation and as we talked about previously i'm a very simple soul it's looking at scene safety for myself. You know, if they've got cold, how have they got cold? Can I be susceptible to that? It's my team and then it's the patient. Once I've taken that on board, if they are shivering, I can encourage them to shiver. So I can get them out of their wet clothing, can get them out of the stream. I can then get them some, some warm clothing. I can actually get these people to move. So if you're shivering and your conscious level allows, you can move these people. And that's good because it also then helps to generate more and more heat. Now, this is where I'm going to bust a bit of a myth, and I appreciate I've drifted from physiology to treatment here, but I'm just trying to link them all together, if that's okay. Sweet, hot drinks. Busting the myth here, the sugar does nothing for the shiver. Nothing at all. It doesn't fuel it. That's the key. It does not fuel the shiver. The nice thing is, a nice warm drink, it's not going to feel cold, so you'll easily absorb it. The sugar will also help you take on some of that fluid as you start to wake through. But importantly, the sugar will feed the central control. Gail and colleagues did a fascinating study where they caused people to be cold and therefore shiver and then gave them insulin, which made them hypoglycemic and the shivering stopped. Now, part of this is that the temperature which shivering will commence is reduced, which has been shown in animal studies since, but also because when you're hypoglycemic, you vasodilate and you begin to sweat. Um, and this is thought to potentially be a survival mechanism. But importantly for us in the pre-hospital, the interesting bit was that the isolated limb continued to shiver even though the insulin hadn't got to that part of the limb, suggesting that actually this is a central control rather than the glucose being the fuel. So again, in your ABC approach, these patients don't ever forget glucose. Do check the glucose. Again, peripherally, maybe not so good, but earlobes are slightly better. And if it is low, then a, a dose of 5 or 10% dextrose, whatever you have with you, is appropriate because again in those people who are on the verge of stopping their shiver because they're becoming hypoglycemic for whatever reason that'll actually just pump it back up and allow the brain to go yep keep firing off keep using the glycogen let's keep shivering because that's going to keep us going and actually having a shivering patient who's talking to you is much easier to manage than a hypothermic non-shivering patient and the Lake District Search and Mountain Rescue came up with this triage tool where they basically said that's your differentiation there between your mild and your moderate severe hypothermics because of course your moderate severe hypothermics they're into that i'm rapidly cooling i'm not helping myself they're reliant purely on you to provide that reheat and they're also the patients you need to be careful with that's a gentle movement not wanting to agitate them too much because they are at risk of the myocardium going into the afs and other arrhythmias again it's not common but it can do but they're the ones you need to be gentle with and then again, that drifts then down towards your very severe, whether into the cardiac arrest territory. I suspect that's enough physiology for now. <laughs> <laughs> Brain definitely melting. No, there's some really interesting stuff in there, and particularly busting that myth about glucose being the fuel with which we shiver, as opposed to being a fuel with which it fuels the computer to allow us to generate glycogen 
or to release glycogen to yeah, then shiver. Exactly. A couple of things that kind of popped into my head there. One of the problems that I find certainly from a mountain rescue point of view, and often if given that my basics kit is left in the car, electronics in the cold are a bit pants. And blood sugar monitors particularly don't seem to like the cold. So my kind of go-to is just to treat with a bit of sugar anyway. Are there any downsides to that? In the general population, no. There will obviously be those who are type glycemic controls. But again, a little bit of sugar, once they're nice and warm, you can recheck them later. So as a, I have nothing else to lose, absolutely popping it in. But in terms of glucometers working in the cold, David Hillebrand, a bit of a mountain legend, gives wonderful stories of climbing to very high altitudes with uh, glycemic control managed brilliantly. And again, his top tip is, just like the batteries for your mobile phone or the spare ones for your torch, just keep them close to your chest and it'll keep it nice and warm for you. So if you ever do feel like taking electromode into the hills, that's my top tip. Stick it in your shirt pocket rather than your jacket and it keeps it nice and warm. But I agree with you. Very politely, they're pretty pants. (laughs) And I guess the second thing is, again, looking at, at folk as they start to lose that shiver reflex. In Scottish mountain rescue, certainly, we have got to the stage where if we can physically get them onto two feet, we will try and move these guys out very gently and very cautiously and accept that we are running a degree of risk by doing that purely because you're putting them onto a stretcher means that they're going to continue that cooling and not generate any of their own heat. What are your thoughts around that? No, I agree completely. If somebody can help themselves, then that's helping the team and that's helping me. As you allude to, the moment they stop, and there is some interesting literature about the psychology of survival, if you are encouraged to fight with me to get you to survive, you do much better than if I say, don't worry, mate, I'm here. I've got the orange flight suit on. You's all good, man. You's all good. It doesn't work. They stop fighting. And the moment you stop fighting, actually physiologically, as you say, you kind of relax. And in relaxing, you're not generating as much heat. Your heart rate starts to slow down a bit. You're not confusing as well as you could. And there's some fantastic stories of survival where patients have been seen by particularly military search and rescue. They've plucked them out of the water and they've gone, you're all right, mate, we've got you, we've got you. Don't panic. And then they just stop. They stop helping themselves and they fall in a heap. So absolutely, if you can get somebody to help do a self-rescue, by walking them, keeping them generating that heat, provided they're still conscious enough and they can do that without stumbling too much, that they've actually feel slightly pepped up by a little bit of sugar you've given them, they've maintained that shiver and there's no other injuries to prevent that happening, then fantastic. But the moment, as you say, the moment you lie them down on that stretcher, they will start to cool down rapidly. A bit like we've all felt if we've tried to have a little sleep out on the hill and the wind's picked up, you've stopped walking, you cool down really quickly. The other component to that is, You've now increased the risk of your rescue significantly. And those who've done mountain rescue are aware that carrying myself down an icy track, carrying a stretcher on my back as a folded piece is riskier than me just walking up with a knapsack. But if I've now got to carry with four, five, six other people through that narrow track, slippy underfoot whilst carrying an extra weight, suddenly the risk of the rescue overall goes up. It also slows the rescue down significantly. Because every time you get to a technical piece of the path and well experienced, you have to stop, you have to navigate it, maybe single hand over hand, looping round. And suddenly then you're not only you slow, you're increasing the risk, but your patient's also getting colder because they have had a prolonged period of time in that cold environment. So absolutely, if they can help self-rescue, get them out self-rescuing. I guess the, the kind of corollary of that from a basics point of view is that the majority of the time somebody's hit treble nine because there is an injury. What can we do in terms of trying to reduce the ongoing cooling of our patients? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm going to bite-sized physiology. We tend to lose heat by the core mechanisms. And those of you who've done the FRCA anaesthetic exams, they give you certain percentages, but they're not quite right. You tend to lose heat by radiation. So you stand there in your swimming shorts and you're going to have loads of radiatively heat loss, but also we gain heat from the sun in that same way. Conduction, uh, i.e. contact with the ground. So if it's just your feet in contact with the ground, you're cool. If it's your entire back, because you're now lying in the ground in the cold water, the cold snow, you'll cool down quicker. Convection, convection obviously being where you've got wind blowing over you. 
and that's blowing away that kind of layer of warm air that you've generated around the outside of your chest, that will also cool you down. And then evaporative losses. Now, that invariably, when you're too hot, that's sweating. But also in the very cold hypothermic patients, thinking about the evaporative losses from the lungs, very small, comparable to the convective that you're going to have with your wind chill and the conductive because they're lying flat. So now having got those concepts in mind, how do you reverse them? Well, radiative losses are actually quite easy. Just put some clothes on. You know, even just a thin pair of thermals, woolly hat, balaclava, you'll reduce your radiative losses to next to nothing. Your conductive losses, get them up off the ground, put an insulative layer. Now, that might be a very simple carry mat or, you know, even a plastic sheet. And we've done some work looking at these orange survival bags you've seen around. Yes, they're not great for conductive losses, but what they are really good for is your convective losses and that it stops the wind blowing through. And so you can actually then start to generate a little heat bubble within that plastic bags by warming up the air and warming up the clothes within it. And so, again, that's the next stage. You're convective. Stop the wind, get them into shelter. The plastic bivy bag type territories work very well and remove any external cold sources. Now, the very obvious things, of course, not to be forgotten here, are if you do have a car, which is five yards away, get them into the back of the car, drop the seats, turn the heating on, get the engine running and actually start to warm them externally that way. But the keys for me are to reduce your radiative losses. So get a woolly hat on, get some clothes on, stop the convective losses by getting them into a big plastic bag of some description and then stop the conductive losses by actually getting them up off the ground onto a carry mat, a thermarest type things, even if that's several rucksacks kind of stacked together, just so they're up off the cold ground on something slightly warmer. And then in terms of the evaporative losses, again, very minimal, but there are various things you can do around that, getting people to breathe through scarves, that kind of thing. Now, if you have the kit with you, and again, some of the bigger teams may have this, I know that my own pre-hospital team carries them, we use the Hibble method. Uh, now, the Hibble method is beautifully described, and I can send you the details of the paper later, but they actually compared this. The Scandinavian Journal of Trauma and Emergency Medicine did a comparative of warming methods, and they compared bubble wrap, again for these losses, with the Hibble method. Now, the Hibble method is you cover them in a big blanket, and then you put them in essentially a tin foil, but it's your classic tin foil you get at the end of the London Marathon, is a bit of a waste of space. It acts like a thermos, keeps cold things cold and hot things hot. But if you then do a double layer, as you see in products like the Blizzard Banquet, you actually then get air trapped between. So you reduce your relative losses, but you've also created a convective barrier. But you've got to make sure it's round the toes, up round the top. So the only thing you can see is on the face or any limb injuries you need to get access to. Within these, you can also then put external heat packs. There are various brands out there. Blizzard do them. We use the Ready Heat Blanket where it has the exothermic granules. There are other products on the market I'm sure you guys are aware of. And once you've got all that going, you've now gone from a passive to active heat generation. And again, getting them up off the ground onto either a stretcher or if you've not got that, even things as simple as half a dozen rucksacks laying on the ground until you've got a point of extrication. That's really interesting. One of the mantras within Scottish Mountain Rescue is that we're never really going to make a significant difference in terms of reheating a patient on a hill. But what we can do is provide the environment in which the patient can rewarm themselves and insulate them from further heat loss. And I guess that sort of chimes with what you're saying. What we're doing is warming the environment around them and giving them a bit of fuel and seeing what happens. Exactly that. Most people will actually self-generate heat provided you can do you know your colleagues in mountain rescue are absolutely right it is rare in the pre-hospital environment that you can actively rewarm someone that you get a temperature change by the time you get to hospital if you can i suggest you've had quite a long journey to get there but when you're in the 20 30 minutes thinking about that 80 kilo piece of meat you're not going to start rewarming them with a couple of heat pads but what you will do is you'll stop any further heat loss which is almost more important than trying to actively warm certain areas you can go into the full details of if you can do going into core areas of under armpits. But again, that's quite tricky because what you don't want to do is burn your patient who can't tell you that they're burning because they're too cold because their cancerous level is too low. Of course, all this comes down to, you know, do we warm them up? Do we cool them down? Partly it's subjective to the patient. Do they feel warmer and warmer patients are happier patients and they generate more heat for themselves. The other question is how we measure temperature pre-hospitally, which um, if we have time, I'm happy to go into if that would be of interest. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really useful 
place to look. The one kind of reassuring thing, I guess, before we dive into the nitty gritty of it is one of the nice things about the Swiss scale is that it sort of relies almost more on the clinical picture Absolutely. rather than on the and numbers you that you generate. The first one, whilst they put temperatures aside to them, the clinical picture is the key. For those of us that have to work in institutions and services where a lot of it's target driven, they want to know what the temperature was, what this was. Having worked in mountain rescue like yourself, the reality is the absolute temperature of the patient doesn't make that much difference in terms of my management because it's very individual from patient to patient. I need to coarsely triage them because the treatments are pretty much the same. If you're shivering, it's one direction. If you're not shivering, it's another. And then that final group of, are you actually too dead? And I need to stop this being a rescue attempt. And this is now a body recovery uh, type territory. None of which really rely on temperature. Um, the time that temperature becomes important is if we then need to talk to places in your neck of the woods, sort of Aberdeen or Edinburgh, in terms of ECMO or extracorporeal life support. But generally, it is all based on what does a patient in front of me look like? OK, so what's your preferred method for, um, for getting a temperature? In my unconscious patient, an esophageal temperature probe is probably the closest that I can get in the pre-hospital environment to a core temperature. The downsides, however... You've got to be unconscious, otherwise you want to gag and chew it, which is never nice. They're not available to all pre-hospital users. And again, coming back to what you said earlier, it does involve a certain amount of electromed to actually have the capacity to measure that temperature. Once you step away from that being kind of almost my gold standard, at that point, people always ask me, oh, what about a rectal temperature? You can use the same probe for rectal temperatures. You can take rectal thermometers with you. Being very British, it's not something I particularly enjoy sticking probes at people's rear ends. But the other problem with it is your different parts of the body will cool at different rates. And one of the, the funky things about poo is it does ferment ever so slightly. And so sometimes you can actually get temperatures higher than the core temperature just because you're actually measuring the temperature of fermenting cocker rather than actually a core temperature of your patient. You can then go into, say, the armpits. But again, if they've been in wet, cold clothes, the armpits is an auxilla type temperature using any of the kind of standard temperature probes. It's very difficult. Tympanics do work uh, fairly well. Provided you have a tympanic thermometer that can read below 35 degrees, they can be useful. Many off-the-shelf brands, however, will actually just scream low at you when go down into the lower temperatures. The other complicating factor is if the ear is wet at all from following an immersion incident or from excessive snow or driving rain, it won't actually read appropriately. This has been tested by the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the University of Portsmouth, where they've immersed people in 12-degree water and serially measured the left ear that was kept dry, the right ear that was continually wetted with the cold water, and then compared against the core temperature for the individual. And the summary line is that the tympanics and the wet ear were two degrees out compared to the core temperature, but this wasn't consistent and was incredibly variable from patient to patient. Essentially, if it's wet, it's useless. So again, temperature, specific temperatures pre-hospitally are possible. You have to be careful about where you're measuring the temperature and also then understand the limitations of where you're measuring it. So things like um, placing thermometers under the tongue, superb, except most people who are shivering will actually bite it, break it, snap it. <laughs> again, you then stop being able to measure temperature. Tympanics, again, any electromed in the pre-hospital environment when you go into very cold places, they don't work very well, so you have to keep them either into your pocket or use lithium versus alkali batteries so you don't get the, the effect of the cold as much. But again, looking at the ear itself, if it's wet, if it's particularly cold, it's not going to give you a good reading, particularly if you're using that as part of your decision-making threshold. This is always then a challenge, of course, when you have to talk to somebody in a nice warm hospital who wants to know what their core temperature is because they are using that partly as their threshold for go, no go in terms of extended life support. Really interesting. Certainly had a lot of problems with Scottish weather and tympanic thermometers and essentially just taking measurements of the water sat in somebody's ear rather than yeah, of the patient really. themselves. My kit, I have a fridge freezer thermometer, which gets taped into whichever bodily orifice is available often armpits and it just sort of accepting that i'm not going to get an accurate temperature but what i am going to get is a trend over time which 
might give me yeah, an idea of how I'm doing in terms of insulation. Point. Like many physiological measurements, the absolute measurement is dependent upon the, the limitations of the device itself. But whatever those limitations are, your trend over time will let you know whether things are getting worse or getting slightly better. Or in the most case with the hypothermic, if you're doing a really good job, actually just staying the same with a possible slight increase. Because as we talked about, you know, 60, 70, 80 kilos of meat, it's going to take a long time to cool that up, particularly if you're only using passive methods or light exothermic type territory. Okay, before we finish, I just want to look at the cold and dead that kind of Swiss stage five folk and thinking yeah, a bit about decision I mean, these making are around always a tricky one. Many of us will have done courses where we've had it drilled into us that you're not dead until you're warm and dead. But I've worked with a, a colleague of mine, <laughs> many of you will have met Dr. Phil Coburn, who also says you also can't warm a dead thing. The challenge here is not missing those that are potentially going to survive but also accepting that there will be those who are beyond help, where this is actually a, a dead person. And again, you can approach this in several layers, if you like, on a very simplistic layer, looking at the mechanism of the injury and walking into that scene. Now, we touched on this on the drowning. If you've had submersions beyond 90 minutes where the water is six degrees, that person's dead. That's a hypoxic event. It's irrecoverable damage. They will not survive. If the water is warmer than six degrees and they've had that submersion and you bring them out of the water and they are cold, the chances are this is a hypoxic event and then they've got cold as opposed to cold and hypoxic, unless you've got other information that says actually they were floating on the surface for the last two hours, screaming and shouting, gargling, and then they've got cold. So again, mechanism is key, particularly when you're going to, say, avalanche victims, where again, I know Ian Scott touched on this, Within that avalanche, if you've got significant trauma and you're hypothermic, you're in a bad place and you're unlikely to survive given that significant amount of trauma. But if you make it a very simple case, somebody's lying in the snow with their broken ankle, in terms of whether I commence resuscitation or not, the first question is, do they have a lethal injury? And this is akin to all those mentioned in the jail calc. So decapitation, hemicorporectomy, significant brain destruction, etc. If those are in place then I won't start with a station. This is a dead body. If they've actually got a chest which is non-compressible, so I you know, physically cannot compress the chest because it is so cold, then they are dead. And again, abdomens where it's like it's almost like kneading bread, it's it's just so cold, it's kneadable, then they're dead. And if you've got those two together, you're giving yourself more evidence that this is not a good idea. This person is dead, they are beyond help. And then the other element they talk about in the simple ABC assessment is, have you got ice in the airway or is it impacted in some way with snow such that there is no way air has got in and out of there? Because if that ice can be sustained within the airway, then the temperature of the body itself has got to definitely be below 32 degrees, otherwise it'd be melting and they'd be swallowing it. And you're drifting down into the lower teens, if not even lower temperatures. And so for me, the key on the initial assessment is mechanism of injury. Then looking at, okay, is there anything specific about this in terms of timings? Then looking at the presence of lethal injury, ice in the or snow in the airway, chest that is not compressible, and an abdomen that is kneadable in terms of it feels like it's, it's just horribly rigid and horrible. It's nasty. You, the moment you do it, you see it, you'll go, that's a dead person. The next layer up is if you have any ECG type capability, either an AED or a DFib with uh, screen monitoring. If I've got asystole, that's a bad place to be. If there's any electrical activity at all, even if it's fine VF, for me, that's a patient where there is a possible option. They may very unlikely not survive, but there's an option. But if it's asystolic, that's adding into my big picture of saying, hang on, I've now got somebody who's asystolic with a lethal injury. They are not for resuscitation. This person is dead. If I do have the capability of measuring core temperature, as we talked about, esophageal probes or otherwise, a core temperature less than 15 degrees, again, I'm into the territory of that's really cold. And there are a couple of survivors below this, but only kind of individual case reports. But on those case reports, there are actually specific circumstances have got, they have got cold in running cold water very quickly. They're young children and they've survived. It's not a an outward-going mountaineer in all his clothing, in his sleeping bag, who's got a core temperature of 15. They haven't cooled down quickly. And if you can then also then guess on your ECG, and that shows asystole, 
then this person is in the territory of being dead. Beyond that, the next layer, and again, there are some pre-hospital teams, and I believe EMRS up in Scotland carry point-of-care testing for pH, lactate and potassium. These, again, will give me some indications. And potassium is probably the key. A high potassium hyperkalemia is an indication of cell lysis, that you're actually measuring intracellular potassium because it's dead and it's exploded into the vasculature rather than the actual the vascular potassium. And so there are various cutoffs banded around. Eight seems to be, the original papers talked about 12 being the, the absolute cutoff beyond the potassium of 12, pH less than 6.25, this person is dead. Now that's a very absolute. If you come back down the other end, potassium of eight is spoken about as being a better indication, if you like, because normally in the cold, your potassium should drop as the cold temperatures push it back in through your ATPase pumps. So if you've got a potassium of eight or greater, then that person is dead. And that's then game over. The caution, of course, with all of these is when you look at things like pupils, so fixed dilated pupils, that's a natural response as you get cold. Tendon reflexes going, again, that's a very normal thing when you get cold. And unfortunately, they can't be used as discriminators to say this is a non-survivable or this is a survivable person. So for me, that's your, your base layers. Look at my mechanism. Once I've got from a mechanism, go through an ABC approach. Have I got ice in the airway, a non-compressible chest, a kneadable abdomen. And if I've got those, that will not go anywhere. If you've got a lethal injury, again, we're not going anywhere. Next layer up is a core temperature that can be measured. And again, anything below 15, it's very difficult to say that's going to be a survivor. And the other key one for me is if the temperature is the same as the environmental temperature around me, that person is dead. We've had a case recently where the air temperature was 17, 18 degrees and the body was actually at 15. That's a dead person and doesn't require resuscitation. Above that, then again, is then looking at pHs, potassiums and lactates with the key marker being the potassium. An eight is a sensible threshold, although if you're into the territories where you have a very profoundly hypothermic patient who doesn't have ice in the airway, where you can compress the chest, you can get a Lucas device or a, a Zoll device on there doing the external compressions. A discussion with your local ECMO centre is very worthwhile. But again, they're very difficult cases. And it does unfortunately come down to, can you continue your resuscitation and safely extricate that person but if you've got all those other things in mind and you've got your asystole, ice and your airway, compressible chest, they're dead. That's brilliant. It gives some kind of hard and fast suggestions in a, a very difficult decision-making area. I guess the other thing that's probably worth just touching on is, is intermittent CPR for those guys who perhaps whilst making a phone call out to ECMO and sort of seeing if that's a possibility. I know that intermittent CPR is not as good as permanent yeah, CPR, but it's probably better than nothing. Scandinavians, there was an incident involving the Dragon Boat. I forgot the name of the fjord that it was in. And I spoke to the guy who actually ran the incident there, and he actually said to the crews, right, you're going to this ECMO centre, they're holding the cardiac surgery for you, do not do CPR, open the back doors, turn all the heaters off, open all the windows, put on a jacket and go. And he actually advocated no CPR at all for three of the casualties because they had single drivers and they actually did very well. Obviously, if you can continue CPR, that's fantastic. But one of the things in, CP in hypothermia that has gotten to where they are and why they are so survivable is your oxygen requirements go down. And as they've gone down, so has the cardiac flow. And so that's where if you can do CPR, fantastic. If you can get external compression devices on, fantastic. If, however, continuing CPR compromises your rescue attempt, then actually doing CPR for a period of time, stopping, performing the next phase of rescue, continuing CPR is absolutely appropriate. Now, there are various guidelines out there, and rather than confuse everyone, uh, what I would do is say, look at your local guidelines. I believe Scotland have a set with Scottish Mountain Rescue. ICAR have their guidelines as well, which are very similar, but I'd direct people in those directions. Because what I don't want to do is people say, oh, this, this doctor down south, he said I don't have to do CPR on my hypothermics. It's definitely not what we're saying. What we're saying <laughs> is in extreme circumstances where it's not possible to continue CPR during your rescue phase, then it is well within the scientific literature that you can stop to perform a certain phase of the rescue, continue CPR, set for the next phase of rescue, and then so on and so forth. And as you say, intermittent. But I'd go to local guidelines because there is some variance. And these folk who we've stopped on or the unconscious patients, 
any particular harm in a bit of supplementary oxygen? We've already talked about glucose. <laughs> is there anything else that we and can do for them while the rescue is ongoing? supplementary oxygen, not going to do any harm at all with that little bit of extra CPR. As we've talked about, many hypothermic patients, you know, people laugh at me despite the fact I have an expertise in this area, or so I'm told. I've taken patients who are profoundly hypothermic into hospital and all I've done is put them on their left-hand side so they've got postural drainage and taken them in in a Hibble method, so wrapped up in a blizzard blanket with a, an external heat source and a few blankets. And they said, oh, you know, with all your skills, why haven't you intubated and done all these things? You think, well, they're maintaining their airway, they're not actively vomiting, and the actions of intubation, insertion of eye gels, A, it's going to delay my time on scene, but it may also disrupt them. It's quite a stimulating thing to do in somebody who's in quite a friable place. But supplementary oxygen is, again, you're going to do no harm in these individual cases because the oxygen will swirl around and only that shifted by the patient or by your CPR will get in. But they don't need that much oxygen when they're that cold, is the honest answer. So, again, we haven't touched on it, but yeah, if you've got it, it's not going to do you any further harm. Fantastic. So we've run through a good bit of physiology, and then looked at where that takes us in terms of treatment. One of the things that we've been getting all of our presenters to do is to give three top tips. My first one is keep yourself safe, keep your team safe, and then you can actually affect rescue for your casualty. My second top tip is shivering is my key triage tool in hypothermia. The second being a new onset AF, but electrical activity being a good thing. And my third point is think about your twos. So plan ahead. Hypothermia, despite the fact it's a slow, insidious injury, the ongoing treatment for these patients requires huge amounts of resource. So think about your twos. Where do I want to be in two minutes, 20 minutes and two hours? Call for that transport out early. Call ahead to the ECMO centres or the hospitals early so they can actually start bringing teams in. It's not a usual event to get environmental hypothermic patients coming in. And so often it'll be on-call teams coming in from home. What you don't want to do is be busting your back to get a patient to a hospital. Then they have to call in the ECMO team. So think about your twos. Where do I want to be in two minutes, 20 minutes, two hours? Paddy, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. And we'll get the links that you suggested up with the podcast in due course. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.